So remember that in the confession, we're studying what we've called two-sided graces. These are things that are conveyed to us by God. That's why we call them graces. They're conveyed to us in the new covenant, and in these things, we are actors or co-actors with God. That's why we call it two-sided. This is to be contrasted with graces like effectual calling, regeneration, justification, these things that are solely the act of God working upon us, and yet they share this commonality that God Himself is still the root or the source of these blessings. Like all grace, God is the source. We can never say that there is a one-sided grace that is somehow only us. The one-sided graces are all God, and then what we're calling two-sided graces, or you might want to say synergistic graces, are those things that God works in us and then we work out. And this is why we call this covenant the covenant of grace. It is the covenant in which God makes Himself over to His people in, 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 in order to work in individuals through His Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit of grace. And He does this to effectually produce in us and by us the very fruits that He desires to see. That's what we mean by grace. Not merely that the covenant is gracious, how kind, that was very gracious of you to do that, but gracious, gracious as in it is the effectual work of God in us. This work and the Spirit who is the worker, we saw that last Lord's Day, the Spirit who is the worker are both guaranteed to every member of the covenant. So this covenant is distinctively though not exclusively internal. It is a distinctively, though not exclusively, internal covenant. And by internal, I mean the Spirit working in the heart. Now, why would I say that it's not exclusively internal? Well, it's because the effects of this covenant and the graces that are conveyed by means of this covenant are certainly, some of them, externally observable. To compare this with what is the Paedo-Baptist view, what we, who we would consider some of our Presbyterian brothers, when it comes to their children, who they would consider children to be born into the covenant, in that respect, they would say that the covenant for them is first external. They receive the external sign of the covenant for them, baptism as infants. And then that is in hopes that in the future it will become internalized and they will be regenerate. They, they don't believe that in, in baptismal regeneration, they believe that baptism is merely an external sign that they are in the covenant, but in hopes that in the future that will be made internal. For us, the credo-baptist view, uh, a shorter word for credo-baptist view would be biblical view, is that the covenant, this covenant, is first and always internal first, and then that produces external fruit. No matter the person, a young person or an old person, this covenant starts in the heart and it works its way outwardly. Now, we don't believe that the Scriptures give us room for a member of the new covenant who doesn't give any external evidence of such membership. Um, now, what do I mean by external evidence of membership? What kind of ex external evidence are we looking for? The answer is good works. 
we're looking for the fruit of good works. And we have in our confession, chapter 16, seven paragraphs on good works. Now the question is why? We got one paragraph on adoption. Seven paragraphs on good works. Why? Again, if we try to situate ourselves back into the era in which any confession is written, where you find the most writing is usually because that's where there has been the most controversy. During the time of the Reformation and the post-Reformation era in which these early confessions were written, there was a lot of controversy over the role of good works with regard to justification and salvation. Remember, justification is the legal declaration of righteous by God. That is a one-sided covenant grace. God acts. I declare you justified. That's what it means. So the question is, how does this declaration of righteous take into account the good works produced by an individual? That's the question. Answer number one it does not take into account the works produced by the individual at all. Or answer number two, it does in some way take into account the good works produced by the individual. Now let me read to you from the Council of Trent, which was a post-Reformation document uh, put together and collaborated by the Church of Rome. They say life eternal is to be proposed to those working well unto the end and hoping in God, both as a grace mercifully promised to the sons of God through Jesus Christ, we're saying yes and amen, but then they add, and as a reward which is according to the promise of God Himself to be faithfully rendered to their good works and merits. So see, they, they, were, they were going well, got a gift of God through Christ, but then they tack on there and also some of the good works and merits of the faithful. Now, we need to be fair. They would say that their good works are the fruit of the Holy Spirit infusing grace in them. So the Holy Spirit in their theology pours in grace. Then they work outwardly good works. But the fact that that grace has been infused in them and the Spirit has been, or this, this righteousness is infused, means that their works and their merit belong to them now because it's been poured in. It's, so it's actually there. So they, it's kind of a, a balancing act between, well, it's, it's the grace of the Spirit, but it's really our works. I'll keep reading to prove that. They, they, this is how far they go. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification, and that it, that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. If anyone saith that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ, that justice there would be the same as righteousness, or by the sole remission of sins, to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them, or even that the grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. To summarize those two statements, if anybody says what we believe, let him be accursed. The question is, what do the Scriptures say? Romans 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Going even further, Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Apart from, separated, not, not in addition to, not connected with works of the law. Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. The Scriptures are clear that our works play no role in our justification now or in eternity at any point. Even if we want to say that we can attribute our works to the grace of God, that's fine, we should. We still have to say, in justification, they're insignificant. They're not brought into play. In that courtroom, that evidence is dismissed. You can't bring that here. There's only one kind of righteousness that God takes. It's the righteousness of Christ. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's obedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. One man. That one man's not you. That one man is Jesus Christ. His obedience. So, we come back to the question, what is the role of good works? Are they completely irrelevant whatsoever? Are we at liberty at this point to say, hey, if good works don't play a role in our justification, then let's just scratch any and all moral standards and live however we please. Of course not, Paul would say, by no means. May it never be. The Scriptures are clear that God expects His people to be workers of good, obedient to His law, conformed to the image of His Son. So let's, I want to show you this and show you Paul's emphasis on good works in his letter to Titus. Beginning in Titus chapter 1 and verse, verses 15 and 16. He says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They're, they make this profession. We know God. And then they live in such a way, he says, their, their, their lives, they deny this profession by their works. There are works that completely deny the profession, I know God. Of course, that implies there are works that do not deny that profession. And he says that this kind of person is not fit for any good work. He's sort of summarizing the, the major moral problem on the island of Crete. The, this is how these Cretans are, he says. And so now he's going to continue to help Titus understand how to make sure that the Christians, the saints on the island of Crete, are distinct from the typical Cretans. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you... So there's a contrast. In early in chapter 1, he tells them to establish elders and, and what they ought to be. Verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate and be talkers. Here's why you need to have elders of this caliber, because this is the type of person that lives on Crete, these lost people. This is how they are. He says that they're unfit for any good work, but Titus, as for you, you need to do the opposite. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Chapter 2 and verse 7, he says... 
show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. As the apostolic delegate, it was, it was the role of Titus to set an example for the younger men. An example in good works. Not just sound doctrine, not just straight theology, but good works. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ gave Himself to purify a people who are zealous for good works. So if we believe that there's any real effectual virtue in the self-giving of Christ, usually we only talk about the atonement and His wrath-bearing for sinners and our pardon from sin. But here He adds to that and, say, and says that this self-giving of Christ is just as effectual in manifesting zeal for good works as it is in making an atonement for sin. You can't claim Christ as your atonement and at the same time deny that He has purified you for good works. They go together. The virtue of Christ's pardoning work and His purifying work are both rooted in the same act. He gave Himself. You don't, you, we can't separate that. They go together. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, to, to be ready for every good work. The saints are to be prepared for good works. We are to have our minds and our hearts bent to do good works. Chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God, that's believers, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The saints are to be careful to devote themselves to good works. Good works are profitable for people. Chapter 3, verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Christian fruitfulness is rooted in good works. If we are to be fruitful... I chose you that you should go and bear much fruit. If we're to be fruitful, part of our fruit is good works. If you're not doing good works, you're unfruitful. So it's clear from God's Word that when it comes to our standing with God, our works are not taken into account. We're justified based on the righteousness of Christ alone. And that's true for all eternity. At no point is God going to say, All right, guys, the grace period is up. I'm just I'm going to have to start checking works now. 
It's not going to be that way. But at the very same time, it's equally clear that those who have been justified will be doers of good works. And the Scriptures go so far as to say that where good works are evident, or where good works are absent, rather, there's no sign of saving grace, there's no love for Christ, and no hope of heaven without good works. Titus 2.11, John 14.15, Hebrews 12.14. So how do we think about good works? They're not relevant in our justification. It seems like they're pretty significant in our sanctification. So, so where do we go from here? How, how are we supposed to think about good works? And so this chapter of our confession is going to help us answer that question. And we have to go back to the very basis, and that's what I've entitled this first paragraph, the basis of good works, the very foundation, the very ground level with regard to good works. And we're asking the question, what are good works? How do we even define that phrase? Are we left to ourselves to decide what is considered a good work? Is the standard arbitrary or does the standard exist at all? Are my good works different from your good works? Might the, the good works of our church just look a little different than the good works of another church? Is there anything that's subjectively good at all? As a Christian, is anything that I do immediately considered a good work because I've chosen to do it? That's what this first paragraph is answering. How do we determine what works are good works? The answer is given first positively. Good works are only such as God hath commanded in His holy word. Notice the word only. That means exclusively. Good works are exclusively such as God hath commanded in His holy word. Now when we get to paragraph 7, we're going to talk about the things that unregenerate men do, lost people. But here we're talking about Christians. The good works performed by Christians, even as a Christian, only works such as God hath commanded in His holy word can be counted as good works. Now this flows from a very simple train of thought. First, God is good. Psalm 25, 8, good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 105, the Lord is good. Psalm 106, 1, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Psalm 119, 68, you are good and do good. In Mark 10, 18, Jesus Himself said, no one is good except God alone. God is good. This is the first thing that lays the basis for good works. God is good. His goodness is manifested in His kind disposition toward men, His mercy toward the wicked, His grace, His love toward sinners, His tender dealings with the saints, the positive ends of His works of providence, His patience with wayward sheep, His swift justice and eternal punishment of the wicked. That's, he does that because He's good. His crippling of the human kingdoms. He does that because He's good. Every good gift comes from God. As we saw last week, God gives the good gift of Himself by His Spirit to those who ask Him. God is good. Second car in this train, God's Word reveals God. Just as with any rational being, the only way that we can know God is by what He Himself has revealed to us of Himself. I can stand four feet away from you and stare at your face all day long and you can stare at mine. We're not going to walk away knowing each other. But if you begin to talk and tell me about yourself, that's how I know who you are. It's the same with God. 
We can't know Him unless He reveals Himself, and He's done that in His Word, the written Word and the incarnate Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is good. God's Word reveals God. And therefore, the third car, the, the caboose, God's Word reveals to us God's goodness. Christ is the fullness, fullest and clearest revelation of God. But how do we know of Christ? Through the written Word. We have to come to the Word at every point. If we're to learn of God's goodness, we have to go to the Scriptures which teach us of that goodness which is inherent in God and that He also requires of us. In other words, the, the measure of goodness is God, not us. We are not at liberty to decide what's good and what is not good. Only God can do that. And He has done so, and He has given us His Word on the matter. The only place that we can go to find objective revelation from God is in His Word. God is good. His Word reveals Himself, and His Word reveals His goodness. Now, when we hear that, we read this phrase, good works are only such as God hath commanded in His holy Word, we might ask, does this not then somehow limit the, the things that I'm allowed to do, the good works that I'm allowed to do? Well, well, yes and no. It does limit us to what God has called good. But think about it. If, if you're a believer and your desire is to live a life that pleases God, would you rather have free reign to decide what is good based on your feelings, do it, hoping that God also agrees that it's good? Or would you rather God just say, here's what's good, do that, and you can do that in complete confidence that you are pleasing God? The second one is, is a way in which this idea of limiting actually works out for our good. It's, it's a blessing. And when we think this way, it really lays out for us an entire lifetime of good to be done. We're not... We're not going to find ourselves saying, oh, I get, I've done all the good that there is to do. I don't know what else. I mean, this book, it's, it's so limiting. Again, we might say, you know, I've, I've read the Bible. You, you hear people say this, this sort of stuff. I've read the Bible, and uh, it seems like if all that I'm allowed to call good and do as good works are things in this book, then, then that's going to sort of limit my life if I, if I live according to this ancient script. You know, these people... You'll hear people say things like this if you talk about the regulative principle or, or ordering our life according to the Scriptures, and they'll say things like, well, Jesus didn't drive a car. You know, they, they don't understand like, what we're saying. God's Word is not a script. We're not living out a, a, a play where we find our name and we say, okay, what's, what are my lines? Okay, that's not how we use God's Word. It is a revelation of the mind of God, and it is so expansive and so broad that it, it fills up our life with good. As a matter of fact, if we get to the point where we're kind of bored because we think we've been limited, we fail. We're, we're in disobedience. We've not understood it. So I want to give you, in, in thinking this way, I want to give you four ways in which we might deduce what is a good work from the Scriptures? The first one is by explicit command or prohibition. An explicit command. It says, do this. I don't have to question. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to pray about it. It just says it. For example, in Romans 12, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Nothing unclear about that at all. It's explicit. Do it. But there might also be an explicit prohibition. Abstain from sexual immorality, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Now, 
If I'm in a situation where there is the, the uh, temptation to sexual immorality, I don't have to say, hold on, I need to stop and pray about this. It's explicit. It's clear. As a matter of fact, not only am I to abstain, I have a clear command, run, flee sexual immorality. It's good to contribute to the needs of the saints. It's good to show hospitality. It is never good to engage in sexual immorality. It's clear. It's black and white. I don't have to question or wonder. It's explicit. That's one way. The second way is by positive or negative narration. We, when we read the Scriptures, we, we break up the categories into um, what is simply laid out for us as a story, what is descriptive, and then those things which are prescriptive telling us what to do. And sometimes we're not supposed to do exactly what we, we've just heard described. We learn from positive and negative narration. For example, a positive Narrative In Acts chapter 6, you see the widows are not being fed, and so they set apart men for the service of the widows so that the apostles can devote themselves to the Word of God and to prayer. Now it doesn't say, and therefore, go and do likewise. But the light in which that story is set forth shows us that it is a good idea that in a gathering of Christians, in a church, it's smart to set apart some men for works of service so that those who labor in the Word and doctrine can folk and prayer can focus on that work. Now, we continue reading the New Testament and we see that that's what happens with the office of the deacon. So we read that and we say, that's a good thing. It's a good work to do in the church. Negatively, the chapter just before that, Ananias and Sapphira. We read the story. We get to the end, they died. I can deduce from that, God didn't approve of what they done. That wasn't a good work. Other examples. We could put this in the questionable category. The Hebrew midwives lied about the birth of the Hebrew boys to save their lives. Rahab lied to the king of Jericho. Jonathan lied to Saul to protect David. In what light do these events seem to be portrayed in Scripture? Okay, we get that answer and we say, all right, might there be a principle for me to determine what is good or bad when it comes to what comes out of my mouth being the truth and not the truth? We glean a principle, but we can learn from narration. If you want to talk about the answer to that question, we can do it at supper. Positive or negative narration. The third one is by logical inference. This is where we take a text and deduce from it what may or may not be a good action. So here's an example. Proverbs 27, 14. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing. As your kids get older, this is a good text to use for them. There are times to be loud and boisterous. There are times to bless, to speak well of and to your neighbor. And there may be times to bless and speak well of your neighbor loudly. In the morning is not one of those times. Now, so this is just a proverb. If somebody does this, it's not going to be taken as a blessing. It's going to be counted as a curse. It's too early. Lower your voice, please. Now, somebody who doesn't understand this they might say, 
oh, these people are just a bunch of antichrist scrooges. I mean, they're never happy. They don't like, I mean, I'm just, I'm blessing them. I'm just joyful in the Lord. And so I'm just, and, and they think that they're being persecuted when actually it is they who are going against biblical common courtesy to lower your voice in the morning. In the early morning, people are not ready for that yet. So I can deduce, when I get up in the morning, I can deduce it is good for me to speak softly. Or maybe not do so much speaking at all. It's a, and that's a good thing. The fourth thing, that's logical inference. And that, the Proverbs are very useful for that. And then the fourth one is uh, by proper contextual application of, of Scripture, but, but all of these. There might be a command or a prohibition, a positive narrative or a logical inference that you've drawn from Scripture that if you don't use a proper contextual application, even if you do it, it's not going to be a good work because you've not handled the Scriptures properly. I may not ignore the original context. I may not ignore my present context. I may not allow the original context to get lost as I try to bring it into today. And I may not allow my present context to dictate the original context, <clears throat> Romans 13. I have to read the Scriptures and, and understand the Scriptures rightly and my situation rightly and make that fit together properly, then I can begin to deduce what is good and what is not good. But if I distort that in any way, I might read a text and say, this, my situation, seems to be what this is talking about. Therefore, I think if I do this, then this is good when I've not understood this. Or maybe I've not even understood my own situation. You see this with, the, with Job's poor comforters. They thought they understood the situation, and they said a lot of pretty positive things to Job. They just didn't get the picture. They, it's like they were speaking to the wrong person. If they could have traded him out for somebody else, it would have been great information. They misassessed the whole problem, you see. So we, all of that has to be brought to the Scriptures and understood in proper context. And so when we begin to think this way and read this way, what we're going to find out is the Scriptures are an endless treasure trove of revelation in which God Himself shows us what to do, how to do it, why we should do it in every moment of our lives. It, it's, it's not going to limit you. Good works are only such as God hath commanded in His holy word. Now the confession gives us two references. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man... What is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? God clearly sets forth His requirement. This is an excellent example of how doing good while not understanding the Scriptures is not good. We see in our day a lot of people saying, using the phrase social justice. And they'll say, Micah 6, 8, the Lord says to do justice, okay? They take the word justice out, redefine it. They take our culture, misinterpret it and misapply it. They put them together and say, we're just doing good. No, you're not. You're working contrary to Scripture. But the Lord has told us, has, He has told you, oh man, what is good. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace 
who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good, everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a benediction, a word of blessing. And he says, by the word of the covenant, and, and, and we take these things almost as if th this, is, this is how it's going to be. By the blood of the covenant, the eternal covenant, God is going to equip us with everything we need to do His will. He is going to work in us everything we need to be pleasing to Him. He has given it. A few other references that just sort of came to my mind as I thought about this. Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain knew what he was supposed to do. There's no question here. He's not confused. He says, Cain, just do what you've been told to do. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Because he knew. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Do what God has said to do. Here's your job. Fear God and do what He's commanded you. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Pastors, the man of God, is equipped with everything he needs in the Scriptures for every good work, and what is a part of his role? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, using that same word so that they know what are the good works that they should walk in. Again, God has not said, this is the whole duty of man, fear God and keep my, fear me and keep my commandments, and oh, by the way, good luck figuring out what good is. That's not what He's done. God is not that way. His, His, His ways are merciful and kind. He's good. He tells us what to do, and He reveals to us what to do and the power to do it. So, positively, good works are only such as God hath commanded in His holy word, negatively, and good works are not such as without the warrant thereof, that is the warrant of Scripture, are devised by men. So we cannot call good works those practices which we devise of our own thinking. Why is that? We'll go back to the, the, the little train that we saw go by. Why is it that we can't devise good works? Because we are not good. Start at the basis. We're not good. We start with God and not men. As soon as we begin to start with us, we're, we're, we're derailed. These works are not considered good works when they're devised by men. Notice, out of blind zeal. Blind, meaning ignorant of revealed truth. Zeal is excitement and determination to act, to do something. So blind zeal is passion to act that is not illuminated by the Word of God rightly interpreted and rightly applied. It's not good to just do something for the Lord. Paul said this about his own kinsmen in Romans 10 too. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, 
but not according to knowledge. They were doing, doing, doing. They were very laborious in their worship and their practices and things that they were doing. He said, but they're just ignorant of the truth. They don't have the knowledge to put along with it. They don't know the God that they're serving. A lot of times our American entrepreneurial mindset says, we just need to do something. Just, just do something. And what we are assuming is that either God is pleased by just mere activity. Like just run around, pretend like you're busy, and God's going to say, hey, as long as they're staying busy and they're out of my hair, I don't mind. But that's not God's, God's perspective. You're thinking either that or God needs you to be busy in order to accomplish something. And so it would be better if you run on ahead without Him and saying, God, let me show you what I'm doing so that you can get involved. That's not the way God operates. God desires obedience. Obedience to His Word. Not blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. Having good intentions does not make an action good. Here's some phrases that we know. It's not what you do, it's how you do it. False. Or it's the thought that counts. Now that might be fine when little kid gives you a birthday present, but when it comes to the service of God, it's not just the thought that counts. If it's a really spiritual person, they'll say, well, 1 Samuel 16 says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And what that means is it doesn't matter what you do outwardly, God sees your good intentions and He accepts that as good works. Well, God does look at all hearts, and He's not fooled by your heart and your intentions. And God saw David's heart, that David's heart was pure, and that was more important than his physical stature compared to his older brothers. Taken to its logical conclusion, that would lead to Gnosticism. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. It doesn't matter about my actions. All that matters is the inside and my intentions. If my intentions are good, then it's good. That's false. When it comes to Christianity, we don't have to choose between external actions and internal motivations. That's a false dichotomy. We must do right with the right attitude, and God has clearly explained to us what we ought to do and the attitude with which we ought to do it and has given us His Spirit so that we don't have an excuse either way. It's what we do and how we do it. Matthew 5, 9 is referenced here. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Remember they made up the, the Corbin law. If you take this money and give it, to your, give it to the temple, you don't have to, or say you're going to give it to the temple, you don't have to give it to your parents. Completely made up, out of nowhere. Men just said, hey, this is a good way to get some cash into the temple. And he's saying, you can't do that. And he says... In vain do they worship me. Now, this is serious. God does not look down from heaven, see that we are simply busy, and say, it's good that they're busy. He doesn't even look down with neutrality and ignore it and say, oh, they can't mess with anything. They can't hurt anything. Just let them go. Jesus says this is vain worship, and God hates vain worship. This is serious. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then it references Isaiah 29, which was just used there. 
Isaiah 29, 13 and 14, the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. God responds in judgment because they are acting according to the dictates of men. They're drawing near with their mouth. They're confessing Him with their mouth, professing allegiance to God, but in their hearts they're far from God. This is what God, the opposite of what God saw in David, again, he looked at David and he said, Okay, Samuel, I get it. He doesn't look like Saul. But you were kind of wrong on Saul. You know, we, we, they, they expected more out of Saul. Sure, David doesn't look like Saul, but I can see his heart. And that's what I'm after. His heart was close to God. Good works in the life of a Christian are those things that we find commanded in God's Word, not the things which are devised in the mind's of men. God is more concerned that we do rightly than that we simply do. And that's very contrary to how our minds typically run. Now, before we yank the wheel off the other side of the road, we might be tempted to do that or to hear that and then begin to resting in doing nothing and say, well, it would be better that I do nothing than to worship vainly. Well, that won't work either because the same truth we just confessed demands action. We don't get a pass. We believe good works are what God has commanded. We believe that God has commanded good works in His Word. We believe that we have good, His, His Word. So there's no excuse for not being busy about the good works that God has commanded unless we just want to continue in disobedience. See how that works? We, we don't get a pass. This is why we have to be zealous for good works and ready for every good work. Learning, studying. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is a command. Be transformed. And through the renewing of your mind, you'll be able to discern what is good, what is not good. That's your job. You're, you're to be about that business. If you're not busy seeking to be transformed by the renewal of your mind in order to know what is good, out of zeal for good works, so that you may be ready for every good work, you're living in disobedience. And that ain't good. Let's pray.